Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes 50 Caliber Gospel Prayer of the Day, I Believe, Help My Unbelief, Curia Eleison, and the Lord's Prayer, as well as the audio from the YouTube episodes, Are the Jews Saved and Are We There Yet? Enjoy. As a Christian combative, scriptures your arsenal. And while you should be familiar with everything in your arsenal, you should also be aware that there are certain things in your arsenal that even when taken in isolation, maybe pack a little bit more of a punch than others. There are certain words, phrases, names, and prayers, even when taken on their own, that have this concentrated gospel punch, this concentrated 50 caliber round of gospel. And this is why your 50 caliber gospel word of the day, your prayer of the day, is, I believe, help my unbelief. So this 50 caliber gospel prayer, this comes from Mark chapter 9. Now Jesus is walking around doing his thing, and there's a group of people who are arguing about something. Jesus comes up to him, and you know, what are you arguing about? And they're talking about, there's this man, and the man has a son. The son is possessed by a demon. The demon makes the son deaf, mute, and he's just foaming at the mouth, going into convulsions, and, and, and throwing himself into the fire, throwing himself into water, doing all these things, trying to hurt himself, trying to kill the boy. The demon is trying to kill the boy through possession. And the disciples were unable to cast out this demon. And, and this is what the crowd is arguing about. And Jesus just, just goes off at him. He's, you know, you generation, you unbelievers, how long, basically, how long am I going to have to put up with this nonsense? Bring the boy to me immediately. Like, like, why are you even arguing about this? As if, I mean, why are you doubting that God, that Jesus, could heal this, could drive out the, this unclean spirit, this demon? So immediately they go and they bring the boy. Jesus says, how long has this, been, this boy been possessed for? The man tells him, since childhood. It's done all these things to him. He foams at the mouth. He, he has convulsions. It tries to throw him into the fire, into the water to kill him, that kind of thing. The man is absolutely torn up. He's absolutely torn up. His guts are churned. If you read the text, he tells Jesus to have that kind of compassion, that kind of gut-churning compassion. Have, uh, have splachnitzomai, if you know the Greek word for it. He says, have compassion on me, you know, because my son is enduring all these things. And of course, this father doesn't want to see his son suffer and die in this horrible way, being thrown into the fire and the water and being possessed in this horrible thing, this unclean spirit. Please, Jesus, have mercy. Have, have compassion on me. So, one of the things that the Father says is, is, I don't know, it's telling, but it's something that Jesus responds to. He says, if you can, then heal him. And Jesus says, if, if, <laughs> if, what do you mean, if? All things are possible for those who believe. And this isn't you, this isn't permission for you to go believe that you're the president and all of a sudden you're president. Or you believe that you're a millionaire. And you become, no, no, this is, this is talking, <sighs> distraction. All right. So of course these things are possible. Have faith that God will that God will work as God works, that Jesus will have compassion, will love, and can drive out this demon. Now the man responds in this phrase that's turned into this beautiful prayer. And it is a prayer. 
Just because you're praying doesn't mean you're, you're alone with your hands folded. This man is praying directly to Jesus. To pray is to worship. To pray is to worship, which is why you only pray to God. So this man is worshiping God. He's worshiping Jesus by saying this prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus immediately heals. He immediately drives out this unclean spirit. But I want to focus on that prayer, that man's prayer because that encapsulates what it means to be a Christian a lot of the time. I mean, none of us are perfect Christians. Sometimes people talk to me and they say, well, I have these doubts. You know, is my faith strong enough? Is it, Do I believe enough? Am I, you know, am I good enough? This kind of thing. And I, I, wanna, I, I constantly want to take them back to this prayer because this is the prayer of a faithful Christian. This is a prayer of somebody who has a sinful flesh that wants to cause him to doubt, that wants to distract him and turn him away from God. Somebody who has that sinful flesh that's struggling against this spirit, this faithful spirit that trusts in God. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what a Christian says. A Christian says, I don't have that perfect faith, but God makes it perfect. I am perfect only in so much as God perfects me. I believe. Help my unbelief. I am faithful but I'm also a sinner. Simultaneous et peccator. I probably pronounced that wrong. Simultaneously saint and sinner. This is what that prayer is. I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I trust you, but I, I can't do it perfectly. Please help me. This is a, a position of humility. This isn't, I believe, good enough. So why don't you do your thing now? This is, I, I am not worthy for you to help me but I trust that you will. Please, God, do this for me. I believe. Help my unbelief. So in that context, that prayer was answered immediately. This doesn't mean that this is a prayer to get whatever you want, just like that, like God's a, God's a wish-granting machine, a genie or something. But this is a prayer that you are free to pray as a Christian when you have those doubts. You're free to pray when you say, God, I need these things. Please take care of me. I trust in you, but I, I could, you know, I need to be healed. I need to be taken care of. I need your, I need your help. I believe. Help my unbelief. This was your 50 caliber gospel word, your 50 caliber gospel prayer of the day. I believe. Help my unbelief. Give it a shot. Take care. As a Christian, combative scripture is your arsenal. And while you should be familiar with everything in your arsenal, there are certain things in your arsenal that maybe pack a little bit more punch than others. These are certain words, phrases, names, and prayers when, even, even when taken in isolation, have this concentrated power of the gospel, this concentrated 50 caliber round of gospel. This is why your 50 caliber gospel word of the day, your gospel prayer of the day, is Kyrie eleison. Let's get into it. All right, Kyrie eleison. That's obviously not English. 
So what does it mean? Why is it so powerful? Well, this is a phrase, this is a prayer that you hear in Scripture a few times. And Kyrie means Lord, eleison means have mercy or have mercy on us. Now, one example of this is in Matthew chapter chapter 20, I believe. I think it's 2031. Uh, in Matthew, where you have lepers calling out to Jesus and saying, Lord, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us. And then people are saying, shut up, be quiet, be quiet. He's, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, it's important to remember that this isn't necessarily a prayer that was, or a request, something that was shouted out only specifically toward Jesus. But this is, this is a beggar's prayer. This is something where somebody would say, you know, Master, you who are a higher rank than I am, Lord, you who are in charge, you who, you know, it's a humbling, it's a, it's a, it's a groveling, it's, it's, it's you who are be better than I am, please look down on me and have mercy. This is what a beggar might cry out. This is what, this is what somebody who can't, you know, this isn't, a, this isn't a merchant's cry. This isn't, dear God, I'll give you these good works, and in, and, you know, in return, give me this other thing. Yeah, this is, this is a beggar's prayer. Now, if you look at the last words of Luther on his deathbed, he talks about being a beggar, that we Christians are beggars before God. And that this is actually a beautiful thing. Because if we were making a transaction with God, if we were saying, you know, dear God, I am so good, or I am good enough that I deserve this good thing that I want from you. Here, let me trade you my, you know, good works or my whatever it is for this thing. Or, you know, yeah, if it was something like that, then sooner or later we'd run out of things to give God. And, I mean, really... What do we have that God needs? God doesn't need your, your God doesn't need your offerings. You know the, the the bulls on the hills or whatever are His already. But God doesn't need these things from you, so you can't really rightly offer anything to God. Everything is already His. So the only position that you should be in in prayer when you're when you're asking for something from God is something where you're it's a it's a father and a son or a father and a daughter or a lord and a beggar. This is, this is this beggar's prayer here. Kyrie eleison. That's Greek. And you can just say, Lord, have mercy, of course. It's the same thing. It's just a different language. Maybe you'll see in your, uh, if you go to church on Sunday, you'll see in the bulletin, it'll have, a, it'll have a section that says the Kyrie. And this is the part where you say, you know, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. But it's this thing where it's these two, these two words that really, it, they really wrap up the entire gospel in one section. Lord, Master, you who are above me, and I can't do anything to earn what I'm asking for, but you who are above me, please. And then the next part, have mercy, have compassion on me, look upon me with favor. These things, I need these things from you, and I can't get them by myself. I can't get them by trading with you. I can't demand them. I can't name it. I can't claim it. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. Lord, Master, Son of David, you who are higher than me, you who are the God of the universe, look down on me with compassion, have mercy, Kyrie eleison. And when you're crushed by your sins, when you think of those things that you've done wrong, and you say, well, I, have, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God, well, you know what? Beggars don't deserve to be in the presence of, the, of these, these high and noble lords. But with this boldness that God gives you permission to use, you can say, Lord, you who are higher than me, have mercy on me. And God is a good God, and God is a merciful God, and God is a loving God. When you're in your sin, when you're crushed by guilt, when you're suffering, when there's calamity, when there's sickness, when you're lost, when, when, whenever there's anything going on and you are not in control, spoiler alert, that's all the time, talk to God as a beggar 
give it a shot. Say, dear God, I don't deserve anything but death. But you promised, you promised to save me if I have faith. Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. A beggar, someone not worthy of the gift that you're giving him. Give it a shot. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It comes from scripture. It's connected to the promises of God. It rightly puts God in his place. It acknowledges his place on the throne and your place groveling before him. It's a prayer of humility, of humbleness, a prayer of praise and worshiping and honoring God. Like I said, all prayer is worship. When you say, Lord, have mercy, you're saying you are God. You are the only one capable of giving me what I need, and I do not deserve it. Have mercy on me. I am a beggar. Please, son of David, have mercy. And God, who is faithful and just, will have mercy. God will forgive your sins. When you say, Lord, have mercy, your sins are forgiven. Because Christ already died and paid that debt for you. The Lord died for you. He brought himself down to your level and paid the price for your sin already. So when you say, Lord, have mercy, he loves to give that mercy to you. It honors God for him to give that mercy to you. It honors God for you to acknowledge that you don't deserve that mercy. So whenever you need a prayer and you're filling up your arsenal as a Christian combative, I hope you have this round in your kit. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Amen. Give it a shot, guys. Always be in prayer. As a Christian combative, Scripture is your arsenal. And while you should know your entire arsenal, you should also be aware that there are certain things in your arsenal which pack a little bit more punch than others when used even in isolation. I'm talking about certain words, phrases, names, and prayers. Even when used on their own, they, con they contain this condensed gospel, this big 50 caliber punch of gospel. And this is why your 50 caliber gospel word of the day, your prayer of the day, is the Lord's Prayer. Let's get into it. the Lord's Prayer. What's the big deal? Why is, it, why is this a standalone prayer? Why is this something that stands out from other prayers? Well, if you look at different denominations, you'll see different perspectives of the Lord's Prayer. If you look to our Roman Catholics, for example, you'll see them say the Lord's Prayer multiple times, in fact. They'll say, you should say the Lord's Prayer this many times. You should say it this many times a day. You should say it, you know, as part of penance. You should say it as part of, uh, you know, a, a daily rite. You should say it over and over and over and over and over again. Now, if you talk to some other denominations, they'll actually, or individuals from those denominations, they'll actually say, well, actually, you shouldn't use the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer was kind of a kind of a formula. It was kind of to just kind of show you how to pray, like how you could pray, and then you structure your own prayers. So all of your prayers should be organic. This is what they'll say. They'll say you should actually avoid the Lord's Prayer because that's not a prayer from your heart. 
that's a prayer that's written down. It's a rote, per, rote prayer. It's memorized. It doesn't have it doesn't have your heart behind it. It doesn't have your your faith behind it. Therefore, you shouldn't say the Lord's prayer. Now, neither of those two positions are the ones that I'm going to take because neither of those two positions are biblical. Now, in the Bible, when it's talking about prayer, there are warnings about praying, praying incorrectly. There are times when God says, "All right." Don't be like these guys out on the street corner praying so everyone can see them and being so loud. And, oh, look at me and whipping yourself and throwing sackcloth and ashes and, and making a big deal about how, how much you're praying. Don't do that. Definitely don't do that. And don't make your prayer something where it's, where it's, it's a show, where it's other people looking at you and they're not, they're not giving glory to God because they're so amazed with how good you are at praying, how articulate you are at praying. What a good prayer he is. What a prayer warrior he is. He's so good at praying. Here's the other end of the spectrum that you have to be afraid of, that you have to be, you have to be aware of, but not afraid of. This is when people say, well, the prayer... The prayer can't be something memorized. It has to come from your heart. Well, here's the thing. Scripture tells you to talk to God. To pray is to worship. When you pray to someone, you are worshiping them. This is why we only pray to God. But when you pray, it's also a communication back and forth. You're, you're giving thanksgiving. You're asking for things at supplication. You're, you have imprecatory prayers. You're saying, dear God, I don't like this guy. Please smite him. <laughs> That's a different topic altogether. But... It, no matter what the case is, when you're praying to God, you're having a communication with God. And what should that communication look like? That's the question. Well, here's the thing. Say you come home from school. Say you're young and you come home from school and your mom asks you, how was your day? And you tell her about your day, but your heart's not really in it because you're distracted thinking about what video game you're going to play next, right? Did that count? Did you have a conversation with your mother? Or did it not count because your heart wasn't completely in it? What if your heart's only halfway in it? What if you kind of care about your day and you're kind of telling her, but you're kind of distracted? How perfectly does your heart have to be aligned for that prayer to count? You see, you see what I'm getting at here. This is the danger here when you say, well, here are the prerequisites for God to hear your prayer. Here are the prerequisites for your prayer to be good. It has to come from your heart. It has to be, you know, it has to be tied to your emotion. It has to be, you know, an intricate part of your, you know, all of these like specific, like intricate little things that you're supposed to do to make your prayer good enough for God to hear. It's not going to be good enough. Nothing you do is going to be good enough on your own. So you can just get out of that boat right now. You should try to do good, but you're not going to make it. Now, here's the thing. When you pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf. So your failure to have a perfect heart, your failure to have a perfect prayer, God takes care of that for you. God tells you to pray. It's a, it's a reassurance. Yes, it's also a command. You should be in communication with your Heavenly Father. So all of this thing about prayer, what does this have to do with the Lord's Prayer in particular? The Lord's Prayer is one of a few prayers. There's a, there's a bunch of prayers. There's a bunch of things in the Bible that we say as prayers. You can pray the Psalms, for example. That's very common. But many of the Psalms are prayer. Many of the songs are, 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 so, are songs. Many of the Psalms are songs. Many of them are prayer. Many of them, you know, they tell about all different, different kinds of things. But the Lord's Prayer, I want you to take in context, or take into consideration the context where it was introduced. The disciples want to pray. I mean, everybody, we, we Christians, we want to pray. But how do we pray better? Do we pray more times? Do we pray more with our heart? Do we memorize more, you know, eloquent prayers or whatever? Do we come up with better? You know, how do I get better at praying? How do I pray? How do you want me to pray, God? This is what the disciples ask, and then Jesus responds with this beautiful text. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. And he gives you the entire Lord's Prayer right there. 
It's this beautiful prayer. It's, it's, it's encompassing of everything you need to ask for. It's poetic. It's mem you can memorize it. You know, there's a power in that prayer in and of itself. But some of the important part is why it was introduced. They wanted to know how to pray. So when God says, when you pray, pray like this, and then he gives you an example of how to pray, by no means should you say, well, I'm not going to pray that way because, you know, I would memorize it. Yes, memorize that prayer. It's good. You know what? Memorize as much scripture as possible. Memorize the Psalms. Memorize your favorite Bible verses. Why should this be any different? Sometimes, here's the fact, sometimes you don't have the words to talk to God. Sometimes you're just, I, I don't know what to say. You're speechless. You're stumbling over your own words. You're, you're overwhelmed. You're, you, you, you just want something. God, how do I pray? And if you have this piece of scripture memorized, this Lord's Prayer memorized, then you are able to say the exact same prayer, the exact same words that all of the other Christians around you can say. If you're in a hospital bed, a hospital bed or a hospital room, either one, you're in a hospital room. Grandmother's there, great-grandmother's there, beloved Christian woman. She's been going to church since, you know, since back in the day. And you're going to church now. And, and, and she's got dementia. Or she's on a lot of medication. She's not really, she's not really loose. She doesn't know what's going on. And you're, and you're saying, like, how can I communicate to her? She's not, she's not able to hear anything that I say. She's not able to respond to everything that, anything that I say. And then you fall back on this thing. You say, what do we have in common? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And she starts, she starts saying along with, with you, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's just, it takes you away because you're like, God just used the Lord's Prayer to connect generations of Christians with one another. In different languages, it's the same thing. You pray the same prayer that your grandmother prayed. You pray the same prayer that these, that these apostles prayed. It's this beautiful thing. Do not be afraid of the Lord's Prayer. By all means, talk to God as your father said. God, you know, example of prayer. Uh, God, I'm having a really bad day. Please be with me. Give me peace. Um, I've got this interview coming up. Please calm, calm my nerves. Help me to trust in you. Give glory to you in all things. Amen. Guess what? That prayer isn't anywhere in the Bible, but that's how you can pray. That, that's a perfectly good example of prayer. But that doesn't mean you have to forego the great example that was given to you in Scripture. Not at all. Because when you're praying the Lord's Prayer, you're praying God's own words back to him. This is what, if you, I want you to look in the Old Testament. I want you to look at the prophets. I want you to look at the Psalms. I want you to look at all of the people who say, Dear God, you promised this. What's going on? How long, O oh Lord? Or, you know, whatever. Or, God, you promised that a Messiah would come. When you're praying God's words back to him, that's praise right there. That's you saying, guess what? You know what? I heard what you said, and I've been thinking about it, and I memorized it, and it's a part of my life, and it's a part of my hope, and it's a part of what I have faith in. I trust that you will do this, God. Here's what you said you will do. Please do this. You're praying God's words back to him. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. It doesn't lessen your prayer at, at all. It doesn't your, lessen your prayer at all if those words come from God instead of from yourself. And all of the words that come from yourself, I mean, if they're prayed in faith, they come from God anyway. The Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf when you pray. You may pray. You are free to pray. Please pray frequently. Pray about anything. God, thank you for this. Dear God, I need this. God, to you alone be the glory. God, I don't even know what to say, but I need to talk to you right now. 
dear God, dear God, dear God. And when you want to hear him reply, you open up that Bible and you read those words. But if you've got nothing to pray and you just need something, that's what the Lord's Prayer is. That's what he gave to you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Learn those words. Learn what they mean. Learn why God gave them. What God intends them to be used for. It's this beautiful, beautiful, concentrated gospel in the form of this easily memorized prayer. This prayer that saints for thousands of years have been praying and you are invited to pray alongside them. Pray God's word back to him. Pray God's word just like all of the saints before you have prayed in different languages and different continents and different times. Pray to God. The Lord's Prayer is one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful 50 caliber gospel ways that you can do that. Get praying, guys. the Jews saved? That's the question for today. Now, the answer is a little bit complicated. It all depends on who you're talking about. Are you talking about the Old Testament patriarchs like Adam and Eve, and Noah, Abraham? Are you talking about the Israelites like Moses and David? Are you talking about the New Testament Jews like Nicodemus and Caiaphas? the Pharisees, and the, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law? Or are you talking about modern-day followers of Judaism, like Ben Shapiro and Bibi Netanyahu? <laughs> Would you listen to that? That's the sound of a can of worms being opened. You know what they say. Let's get into it. question of, are the Jews saved, depends entirely on who you mean by the Jews. Now, it could be referring to the Israelites, it could be referring to people of Semitic origin, it could be referring to people who trace their bloodline through Isaac all the way back to Abraham. But we know as Christians who have access to the Bible, that it's not the blood of the individual that decides whether or not they're saved, it's the blood of Christ. So, when we're referring to different groups of Jews, what's the difference? What's the difference in their status of salvation? Well, in the case of modern-day Judaism, modern-day Judaism happens after, today is after the crucifixion of, of Christ. It's happened after the crucifixion of Christ, after his crucifixion and resurrection, after the record of these things in the Bible. Modern-day Judaism rejects the teaching of the Bible and rejects the salvation that comes from Christ. Modern-day Judaism rejects God. So, the followers of modern-day Judaism, the religion, are not saved, regardless of what their bloodline is. But what about the people in the Old Testament? What about those faithful people in the Old Testament? A lot of times, these people get referred to as the Jews. In fact, a lot of times, 
people use phrases to connect the modern-day Christians to these, these ancient faithfuls. They'll say phrases like Judeo-Christian or an Abrahamic religion. Usually this also includes Islam, despite it coming 700 years after the death of Christ. Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic religion. Abrahamic religion. Now, if that just means that the person is, their bloodline is descended from Abraham, I guess that makes sense. But a religion isn't just about a bloodline. In terms of Christianity, the religion, the bloodline that matters is Christ. His blood is the only blood that matters. So if you want to say it's an Abrahamic religion, if it does not follow the religion of Abraham, then it's not an Abrahamic religion. Now, Abraham and many of the people in the Old Testament, they worshiped God. They worshiped Yahweh. In fact, you go back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, however it's pronounced. The first promise of the gospel that's given to Adam and Eve. The, uh, the, the, the serpent shall, shall strike his heel and he shall crush his head. That, that part. The part where the, the Savior is promised to come through the lineage of Adam and Eve. Now, they're promised a Savior, but they're not given the specifics about Jesus Christ, where he's going to be born, that he's going to be born of a virgin. All of these things are revealed later. There's progressive revelation that takes place during the course of the Old Testament. As the Old Testament goes forward, more and more is revealed in prophecy about the Messiah that's to come. And, of course, when you get to the New Testament, even more is revealed as we have the followers of Jesus, right? there, The people who are contemporaries of Jesus, who follow him around, the disciples, the apostles, even the people who don't believe who follow him around and interact with him, have more and more knowledge of who Christ is. Now, the people in the Old Testament, they had faith in that promise of their Savior. They had an imperfect, an imperfect understanding of who Christ would be, who their Savior would be. They did not have all access, they did not have access to all the knowledge that the New Testament the New Testament Jews and Hebrews and Gentiles had access to. They did not have access to all the information that we in the modern day have access to with the Bible and the record of the entirety of the New Testament and the Old Testament. But these people in the Old Testament, even though their vision of their Savior was partially obscured, even though their vision was partially obscured, they still look forward to the cross, even though they couldn't see it perfectly. Now, there's a distinct difference between the people in the past who look forward to the cross and the partial ability that they have to see it, and the people of the present who look back to the cross, see it fully, and deny it. So, as much as Ben Shapiro is a fun guy, his belief in his salvation based on his bloodline or his following of the Ten Commandments or whatever the specifics of his flavor of Judaism, whatever those specifics are, if they're not trusting in the blood of Christ, then there's no excuse. He denies the Savior. He denies the one way that he can be saved. On the contrary, Abraham, who did not have a full picture of who Christ was, he had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, for the reading for today, there's actually a couple readings for today. The gospel reading for today, Jesus tells the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. But before this, he talks about the prophets and the kings of the Old Testament and how fortunate the people of the New Testament were because the people of the Old Testament would have loved to see Christ, would have loved to see their Messiah in person, would have loved to see these things in person. And how blessed are these people who can see these things? People in the Old Testament had faith even though they did not see. 
the epistle, the epistle lesson for today, the epistle reading for today, on the other hand, contrasts Abraham and Moses, the 430-year difference between them. It's from Galatians. And Paul talks about the promise of salvation that Abraham believes in. This promise of salvation is given to Abraham. There's a promise of his descendant, the singular descendant of Abraham, Jesus, who would save the people. This is the promise of the promise of the seed, the promise of the seed of Abraham, the promise of the singular offspring of Abraham that would save the people. This is the same promise that was given to Adam and Eve. It's just more fully explained to Abraham. Now, of course, there's also the promises given to the plural descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, that those who believe will be saved. Those who believe will be saved. This is a promise of inheritance, not a promise, well, it's not a paycheck. It's not follow these things and then you'll be saved. It's a promise that you will be saved. This is a free gift. Now, Paul contrasts this free gift to the law of Moses. The law of Moses comes later, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. These are the things that many Jews later on, many Hebrews, many Israelites would rely on to follow to gain their salvation. It, that would be a works-based righteousness system. But the reality is that the promise of salvation came before the giving of the law. The promise of salvation is not reverted to you following the law when the law was given. The promise of salvation was an inheritance given before the law and God's promise remains. So the law is given after the salvation is promised. The difficulty is that many of the followers of the faith Yahwehism, the faithful in the Old Testament, there, were, there would be many rabbis and many teachers who would try to add to these laws, add to these teachings of God. There would be rabbinical writings that would then say, well, you have to follow, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy and not work, well, then here are 617 or 613, however many it was, extra laws that you have to follow so you don't accidentally break the law of you know, working on the Sabbath. Because of this, Judaisms, plural, there were multiple different kind of strains, multiple denominations of Judaism, kind of cropped up in the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So when it came into the New Testament, you had followers of the faith of Abraham, and you had followers of works righteousness, both claiming the title of Jew, both claiming the same lineage spiritually. And the difference between these things, as we can see in the difference between Nicodemus and Caiaphas, for example. Caiaphas refuses the Messiah, refuses the Christ, refuses the faith of Abraham. On the other hand, Nicodemus later comes to believe, as we find out in the Gospels. So, if you want to answer the question, are the Jews saved, it depends entirely on what you mean by the Jews. Do you mean those faithful in the Old Testament who, pro who trusted in the promise of Adam and Eve and Abraham and, and Noah and Moses? Do you mean those faithful in the New Testament who were converts from Judaism to Christianity or whose faith flowed naturally from the promises of Abraham to the promises of Christ? In those cases, yes. The Jews are saved, but they're known now as Christians. You could call the Old Testament patriarchs, Christians, if you wanted to, because they trusted in the Christ, in the Messiah, in the Chosen One, in the Anointed One. Now, the modern-day Jews, the modern-day Mohammedans, Muslims, the modern-day whatever you want to call them, anybody, any religion, 
any religion, even if it traces its lineage back to Abraham or Noah or David or whoever, any religion that rejects Christ's divinity, that rejects the saving power of Christ's death on the cross, that rejects the salvation through faith, grace, the free gift of God, any religion that rejects these things of God, no matter if they claim it's the same God, it's not. They're not saved. The worshipers of Allah who worship a God that is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God that did not die on the cross to save their sins, they are not saved. The worshipers of Yahweh who gave the Ten Commandments to Moses as a way to salvation but did not give a savior to the earth in Christ, the worshipers of that God are not saved. These are worshipers of themselves or worshipers of false religions, false gods, or even demons. Salvation comes from Christ alone. So regardless of what title you want to put on a person, if you want to call them a Jew because they lived in the Old Testament or in Judea, but they put their faith in Christ, then they are saved. If they did not put their faith in Christ, even if they were the direct descendants of Abraham, they're not saved. But this does not mean that you should treat these people with hatred and derision. On the contrary, you should treat these people with pity and with love, with compassion. These people should have the promise of the gospel given to them. They should be confronted with the law to know that they're a sinner and that should lead on to them being given the gospel to have a savior. Christ didn't just die for the modern day Christians. Christ died for the world so that anyone who has faith in Christ, anyone who trusts that he is who he says he is and he did what he said he did, anyone who has faith and repentance will be saved. I hope that satisfied your desire to open the can of worms, and I hope that you have a wonderful day. Take care. A little while and a little while. In a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while, you'll see me again. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. A little while, a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little while longer. What is it about this phrase that even today can give us so much comfort? Well, let's get into it. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says something cryptic as he does from time to time and they start asking each other what does he mean by this and Jesus knowing what you know what they're talking about says oh are you guys asking about this this statement that I said in a little while you won't see me and in a little while you will and that I'm going to the father well Jesus is talking about at that point he's talking about the crucifixion that's going to happen there's a little period of time in which the disciples are going to endure serious suffering and watching their Savior, their Lord, uh, tortured, beaten, and treated like a criminal, ultimately to be put to death on the cross. It's this little while, and then he's going to be in the tomb for a little while, 
And then a little while after that, he's going to come back and their joy is going to be something that can't be taken from them. But while he's in the tomb, uh, they're going to be enduring that suffering and the rest of the world is going to be, it's going to have joy. The rest of the world is going to have joy. But once Easter Sunday happens uh, and he comes out of that tomb, then all of a sudden all of, their, all of their, their anguish, their suffering turns to joy. Their sadness turns to joy. And it's interesting to think about that we still deal with situations like this, with, with suffering. We deal with situations like that by not fixating on the present, but by looking to the future. And it can be easy to get wrapped up in the present, especially if there's suffering going on. We can, we can say to ourselves, oh, it's, it's just, it's terrible, it's awful. You know, what I'm going through, it can't possibly get any worse, but somehow it still will. And we think about, you know, it's, it's needs of the body, we think about illnesses, we think about um, relationships with family and friends and need for money and things like that. We say, man, you know, well, I'm, I'm really suffering here. Uh, this is horrible. I can't, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. I can't endure this. And one of the ways you can get through situations like this is actually by looking to the future. Now, I'll give you a situation that nobody wants to hear about because boot camp stores are stupid. But when I was in boot camp, I wasn't used to waking up early and making my bed every day and all of those horrible tasks. And what's more, I had to do all of these horrible things like, you know, make my bed every day without so much as a slice of pizza or a candy bar. I mean, it's basically torture. But here's the thing, in boot camp, Marine Corps boot camp is three months long. If I had lived in the moment, in the suffering of the moment, in the challenges of the moment, it would have been completely unbearable. But I managed to tell myself a few things. First, I said, they can't stop the clock. No matter what happens, time marches on. And I reminded myself that no matter, no matter how many push-ups I had to do, no matter how much the drill instructors trained me, I was still moving closer and closer to the end of boot camp that three month period where I would graduate and I would be done with this, with the, these challenges. At the same time, day to day, I could get through the suffering of the day by looking forward to the promise of rest at the next meal and say, oh, just a little while until I have breakfast, just a little bit longer until, you know, until I get to go to lunch, just a few more hours, a few more tasks, and then I can go to dinner and then I can go to sleep. It was this way I was able to, to live through the moment, not by living in the moment, but by looking to the future, which had a positive promise attached to it. And this is a similar thing that we can do as Christians now. So when Jesus is talking to his disciples here, <laughs> I mean, he's specifically talking about, you know, the, his death and resurrection that they, would soon, that they would soon observe. But at the same time, it's also a message to Christians in general. You are currently living in a world full of sin. I don't know if you know that. But this is why there is so much suffering in the world. There are things in the world that are miserable. And downplaying them and saying, oh, it's not that bad, is not the right way to go. If you're suffering from an illness, an injury, or something like that, yeah, maybe it is that bad. Maybe it actually is that bad suffering. So don't downplay that illness. Don't downplay that suffering. Don't downplay those challenges. But at the same time, if you live in that moment and you say, this is how it's always going to be. The suffering I'm enduring now is the suffering I'm always going to have then you lose sight of the future and you lose hope. Now, for the Christian, they have the promise of eternal life. That regardless of how bad the suffering happens, no matter if you're, if you're persecuted or if you're martyred for your faith, as many faithful Christians have been in the past, the reality is that you know the end of the story. Someone can sure it. Somebody can kill your body, but the Lord saves your soul, right? The worst that somebody can do to you is send you to your God. I mean, at the end of the day, you win. 
So as bad as they can make life for you, as much suffering as you can endure, ultimately you can have confidence, you can understand that you can understand that the end of the story, it's a good ending. Christ cares about you. He died for you. He loves you. This isn't the suffering you're enduring. This is not punishment for you. You know, you did something and then God is punishing you for this. This suffering that you're enduring right now is part of the, uh, God will talk about it, like the, the pangs of childbirth. This is part of the unfortunate reality that we live in a fallen world full of sin and suffering. But just like the example that Jesus gives in this gospel lesson for today, he talks about it being like childbirth. He says that the sadness, the sorrow will turn into joy. Just as a person going through labor may spend two minutes, two hours, or 22 hours in labor, you know, giving birth to a child, and it's, it's sheer agony for them. I haven't been through it myself, but my wife sure has. It's sheer agony for these people giving birth to the child. But once the child is born, from that point on, that person, that person knows that they have a child. No matter how long the child lives, no matter how good the relationship is, that mother has, has given birth to a child. This is something eternally can't be taken away. You can't go and unborn someone. It doesn't, it doesn't work. This person has an eternal joy that can't be taken away. And this promise that God gives us of the eternal life and our salvation is an even greater eternal joy. So even though our suffering may even be worse than giving birth to a child, that suffering will turn to joy. This is the promise that we have to look forward to. Rather than living in the moment, rather than focusing on the suffering that we're currently enduring, it's real suffering, yes, but it's temporary. The thing that's forever is the eternal life that follows after your death. So again, we don't know how long it's going to be until Christ returns. Could be tomorrow, could be after you, you've already died and gone to heaven. But it's still just a little while when you think about the eternity that you're going to spend with your Savior without sickness, disease, or suffering. That's something to look forward to. See you again in a little while.